maybe there's a reason people have gluten sensitivity because they've been consuming more gluten than our guts evolved to digest. And when you add vital wheat gluten just so it, you know, can rise fast and hold its form, um, you know, I'm calling bullshit on that. That's not feeding the people well. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I catch up with Ken Forkish, a prolific cookbook author behind works like Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast, Elements of Pizza, and Evolutions in Bread. We talked to Ken about moving from Portland, his home base for many decades, to Hawaii of all places. He's baking in Hawaii. He's doing pizza pop-ups once a month. You should catch him there. We also get some of Ken's strong opinions about the bread world and about cooking in general. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Ken Forkish. Ken Forkish, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hey, man, how are you? It's great to see you. It is morning in your neck of the woods. It is late afternoon here. You live in Hawaii. Yes, I do. My goodness. Let's, how did you end up in Hawaii from Portland? We know you as a, a cookbook author, a, a master baker, a pizzolo based in Portland, Oregon, but now you are no longer there. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I've been coming to Hawaii for, it was, it was my getaway. <laughs> um, I mean, that place that I would come to restore and find peace again. The restaurant industry um, is, is challenging. It's hard. It's, um, it's rewarding, but it really, cons- it's consuming too, in, in good ways and not so good ways um, for me anyway. So for about a dozen years, I would come to Hawaii. Um, most of the islands, uh, went Maui many times. Uh, I really liked Lanai. This is a beautiful island. Um, but I think more than any other, I've been coming to the big island since, oh, probably 20, 2009, 2010, somewhere, a couple times a year. And so the last couple of years, I just said, you know, I really just want to live here um, full time. And that was uh, also coincident with a period where I was getting close to having accomplished what I wanted to accomplish um, at my bakery and pizzeria in terms of product quality and sort of excising my creative demons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing led to another and um I don't know. The pandemic may have accelerated it, but I was kind of on this timeline anyway. Yeah, you're you're easing your way out. Got to ask you, Umeke is on the Big Island. Is that a poke place you go to at all? Um, you know, I thought about going there for lunch yesterday because running errands in Kona and <laughs> around there. I know it's super popular. I haven't been yet. Uh, have you been? Do you know it? Yeah, I love it. I, I've been many times. I, I well, many times meaning on the one time I was at the Big Island a few years ago. <laughs> before I went many times. No, I, I love that spot, uh, and and it was it was definitely a good wreck from a friend. Uh, it's funny that you uh, were going to go there. Is there is there a way to articulate Hawaiian cuisine for our audience? Because we don't speak to, with a lot of Hawaii Hawaii natives. Um, well, I'm definitely not a Hawaiian native, but yeah. Um, uh, as a resident, uh, resident. Hawaiian cuisine is different than the Hawaiian tourist cuisine, uh, which will have, uh, but, but there's a lot of commonality too. I, you know, for me, it's, I got a, a great fish market two miles down from my house and they're getting fish right off the boat. Uh, and it's, you know, five or six kinds at least, you know, whether it's ahi or ono or opaka paka or mahi mahi or my favorite mahi wow. kong. 
um, great Hawaiian shrimp and um, just an outstanding variety of super fresh fish. So I eat more fish than fish that ate meat. Um, and then fruit and especially things like papayas and mangoes and bananas. Oh, man, this stuff is so great. And just to have it fresh year round is super awesome. Ken, you look great. You look you look glowing. I mean, I can tell through the through the zoom that you look you're glowing right now. It's got to be the papayas. Uh, it's you know, it's it's a lot of things. <laughs> it's a lot of things. Well, you know what? I was in Portland in August, and I went to both your bakery, your namesake bakery, and your namesake pizzeria. Obviously, you're, you've divested, and you're no longer there. But I have to say, at Ken's Artisan Bakery, I had a morning bun and chocolate chip cookie, and all was right in the world. I want to ask you, what was your last shift like at the bakery as, as the boss man? You know, I stopped baking on production shifts uh, around my 60th birthday. Uh, so I'm 64 mm-hmm. right now. Uh, and that um, uh, that was when I had my bakery at Trifecta. Uh, and, you know, part of me misses the act of baking. Part of me doesn't because it's hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's not only hard. It means um, that I have to be in one place for eight or nine hours. And I like to be able to move around. Uh, it's weird. I've discovered that. It's it sort of evolved as my daily rhythm three or four years ago was going to each of my four places every day. And I'd start by going to my bakery in the morning and then I'd go to checkerboard pizza for mm. around 1130 in the morning to check in with staff and uh, have a slice of pizza. Um, and then in the evenings, you know, I drop in at Trifecta, have a cocktail, maybe some oysters, and then I'd go to my pizzeria. And I got into this rhythm of movement every day in my work life and then home office for, you know, office work. Um, so being in one place all of a sudden for eight or nine hours to do a production ship <laughs> was less enjoyable for me because I just had to search yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> Plus my back was getting tired and my feet were sore. <laughs> yeah. Standing for all those years, baking breads, making your, your breads um, must've taken its toll and, and you're now rested. I mean, are you still, are you still baking or making pizza in a professional sense in Hawaii? Are you are you doing anything? I bake both bread and pizza at home a couple times a week, uh, typically. Cool. Um, but I also have a uh, a gig at the Four Seasons Hualalai out of their golf course. It's just a happy hour event. They've got a mobile wood fired oven, and I make pizza um, uh, twice a month. And that's oh my goodness, um, that's as much as I want to do. Sometimes it's more than I want to do. <laughs> uh, but that's a real joy. I love making food for other people. And I love making my food. Uh, And this is nice because of me, instead of me having, you know, instructing staff on how to make food my way, uh, just doing it myself uh, and serving it directly to people. I like that a lot. And it's so twice a month, two shifts a month. um, And you, you clearly, you, you have to work and you have to go through all the, the prep process, but are you pretty tired after those shifts these days now that you're not really in it every day? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, you can sort of lose your resilience and strength um, by not working and doing it every single day. Uh, but uh, when I get in the car to drive home, mostly I'm just looking forward to a whiskey when I arrive. At my house. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You get the reward. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about your writing because obviously listeners of our of our show know you from your cookbooks. Your cookbooks, Portland residents know about you from your restaurants, but most of us know about you from your cookbooks. And Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast just celebrated its 10th birthday. So I have two questions about this book. What's the legacy of the book, first off? And second, is there anything you would change 
10 years later in a new edition if you were given the opportunity? Uh, well, that was my point with Evolutions in Bread, which just published right. more or less on the anniversary of uh, Flower, Water, Salt, Yeast. Flower, Water, Salt, Yeast did what I really, it, it achieved its goal. It was really satisfying because that's not always going to be the case, right? Um, no, so definitely not. You know, what I tried to do with Evolutions in Bread 10 years later is I think a little bit differently as a baker than I did 10 years prior. Um, and when I wrote Flower, Water, Salt, Yeast, it was my first cookbook. So I'd never, I never, I hadn't had that 10 years of feedback from readers that, you know, it comes usually on social media, you know, that I've received now. So it gave me an opportunity to see it from the home baker's point of view and um, maybe change a little bit about how I write. Um, uh, but I think the biggest change was how I use, um, uh, how I use a Levan culture. So in my first book, I used a very traditional amount of uh, flour to refresh and feed the Levan. Uh, most people would use a thousand grams of flour or 500 grams of flour. And um, it's more flour than you need. But at the time I wrote it, you know, I wasn't confident that everybody would be using flour that had enough flora in it to really work. And, and I, I wanted the recipe to work and it did. And so I didn't have any regrets, but a lot of people felt like it was excess flour because you have to throw a certain amount of the sourdough away before the next feeding. And then a lot of people are saying, well, you should never have to throw any of it away. And I'm like, mm. you know, if you want, you know, my goal is to produce a bread that tastes good. <laughs> and there's a certain ratio of retained culture and then new flour and water when you go to feed it. And if, if that ratio changes where the amount of retained culture is high and you're just adding a little bit of flour, it's going to get super sour. And um, that's not desirable to me. So whether it was in flour, water, salt, yeast, or evolutions of bread, the overriding guidance was to have bread that tasted really good and rose really nicely. Uh, but if, in evolutions in bread, I tasked myself with finding the most flour efficient way to do it. And um, I thought I was able to achieve that by yeah, reducing the amount of flour it takes to both start a culture and then feed it and maintain yeah. it by I mean I know, like 80 80 90%. I'd say. Wow. And <laughs> and you your book exploded in popularity during the pandemic and it was yeah. off shelves. I mean it was sold out. And I think you wrote in Evolutions in Bread about making a flour efficient sourdough recipe. Yeah. I mean they have to go hand in hand. We were having flour shortages which is kind of crazy to think. I mean did you ever think we would have flour shortages in our country? Um, I mean, only hope no, but you you, you live enough decades, you realize bad things can happen. Yeah. (laughs) Whether it's like, you know, when I was, uh, when I was 14 years old, there was there, you know, there were lines for gasoline and there are even odd days. So, you know, the even days could get gas on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday days could get on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you know, um, so, you know, obviously that was in the, uh, during the pandemic though, stores ran out of yeast and ran out of flour. But when people were able to buy flour and no yeast, they started doing sourdough. And then uh, uh, that's when I most sorely felt the need to write about a more flour efficient way to do Levin. And that's when I started working on evolutions in bread. Very cool. And you wrote that during the pandemic. What was that process like developing recipes and writing during the pandemic? Did you find you had more focus because you were writing during the pandemic? I wouldn't say entirely um, because my bakery and my pizzeria only closed for two months mm-hmm. uh, from everybody closed more or less on March 16th, <laughs> 2020. Yeah. That was the day. 
Um, but they both reopened uh, end of May that year. So very quickly, I was engaged with my businesses trying to figure out how to reopen and operate and staff safely. Uh, so I didn't have a ton of downtime. Anyway, I just squeezed it in, to be honest. Yeah, you squeezed it. So yeah, you didn't have those, like, I know some chefs who wrote books during the period because they were out of work or just, like, had more time, but it makes sense. No, but was, like, yeah. Plus, you know, we were all scrambling for money. Uh, yeah. if we were going to survive and then there's PPP and all that stuff. So, um, the office work part was, uh, a lot, uh, and then just trying to figure things out. Like, you know, when, when you've had a business running for, you know, like the bakery at that point had been running for 18 years, um, almost 19 years, it was, everything was set and established and somebody would leave, you'd hire someone else and it would keep running the same way. You didn't have to reinvent how you did it. But in the pandemic, it was a complete reorganization of how the place operated with a much smaller staff to go only kind of deal. Um, and that was a lot of work to figure out and, and make happen. Mm-hmm. What does the term sour bro mean to you? I've never heard that term until you mentioned it. I, what does it mean to you? Oh, my gosh. So this is great. So I know uh, during the pandemic, there were a couple thinky pieces written by uh, publications about First, the boom in sourdough baking, bread baking, obsession with bread baking, all great things. But then there was this kind of shift in the tone and about how sourdough became this kind of thing that bros, I don't want to gender it at all, but bros who kind of were into like maybe other things like maybe collecting watches or sports or cars or whatever, were kind of in getting into this bread baking thing. All the toys were being bought to to make bread. There was maybe like a tech element to it. So like this idea of the sour bro kind of popped up, like this idea of this new home cooker, new baker coming from a different demographic who hadn't maybe been baking that much. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I just know it was a comment being made. So it's, it's interesting oh, yeah. that you've not heard about this term. Oh, I hate the term. It's really mis- misogynistic. Uh, yeah. I don't like it at all. I mean, to be honest. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> no, Next <I>, question. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird question. Uh, but let me just uh, expand it a little bit more and yeah, just say sure. new audiences of bakers, right, who bought your book, who had a little more time. I mean, we've seen it from the coverage, what we read about in taste, like home cooking certainly shifted a lot. Obviously, people got exhausted from home cooking, but there was a lot of discovery. So did you see this as well? I'll also add pizza making, too, yeah, of course, sure. became huge. And you're, you've written extensively about pizza as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a big change in the pizza home pizza making um, circuit of, uh, you know, now everybody is using uh, the Uni and uh, Rockbox and, um, you know, the other home high temperature, whether they're gas fired or wood fired pizza ovens. I think that's awesome. Um, and it's really changed the landscape. When I wrote The Elements of Pizza, those devices had just hit the market because I authored that in 2014 and 15. It published in 2016. Mm-hmm. And they were just hitting the market. And I didn't write about that because I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to dedicate a segment of the book to something that is, you know, such a tiny percentage of the readers. But that percentage has grown dramatically. They seem to be very successful businesses. And since I moved to Hawaii, I bought an Uni um, uh, Coda oh. um, that I love. You know, I, I miss having a wood fired oven. You know, anytime I, to, I had one in my house, I'd want it work. Yeah. Um, but the pizza world has changed a lot. High temp baking is takes a little bit different dough than, um, 
home kitchen ovens you know, will get up to 500 to 550 degrees. And that's what I wrote my dough recipes for uh, and techniques for it. But the high temp ovens, and this kind of goes back to the um, the sour bro kind of thing is um, a lot of people, now that they've got ovens that can bake at 850, 950 degrees, think that the best way and the most braggadocio way to make pizza is to bake it at the very highest temp possible. And that's not the pizza I love. Um, yeah. You know, the pizza I make at, um, well, Ken's Artisan Pizza, I'd say our average bake temp is about 800 degrees mm-hmm. uh, in the oven. There's a big difference between the temperature too at the back of the pie that's facing the fire and the front of the pie that's facing the mouth of the oven is probably going to be about 100 degrees difference between those two points, which is why you got to rotate, rotate the, the pie a lot. And if you've got one of the 12 inch, like a rock box, um, or, or any makes 12 inch too, it's, it's really, you can't turn it within the oven. You got to pull it out, turn it by hand, put it back in. That's got to be a change for you using an uni. I can't imagine you using an uni, I mean, but you, you got to. I, I do, and I'm making really good pizza, and I, you know, I post it on Instagram and yeah, I eat it, and it's a really good pizza. So at least I can still get pizza that way. Um, when people want to convert my recipes to bake in those high temp ovens, they need to reduce the hydration about 64, 65 percent in the dough, uh, and it'll handle just fine. Because you know, I talked about how you got to rotate. Um, if you try to do that too soon, your peel is going to puncture the dough on the bottom. And it's, oh, it's even, the worst! Yeah, you know, when you puncture and it leaks, it leaks all over the 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 deck, and you're you're kind of sad face right there. But um, you know why? Uh, I think a lot of people are baking based on metrics that they think they're supposed to bake at 900 degrees, and it's like it's your pizza. I mean, you know, yeah, bake the way you want, not the way somebody else tells you you should do. And I like a little, I like a crisper crust. I like the dough baked all the way through. Uh, and I yeah. used to bake around 750, 800 degrees. And then I'm pretty- You heard it here from Ken Forkish. It's, it's great advice. Ken, how have you seen pizza as a whole change over the years for good or for bad? You've been following the industry. You wrote a book about pizza. Oh, Lord. But pizza is more popular than ever. Uh, isn't that awesome? I mean, pizza is such a great food, but I think... Um, what's happened is that there's a much greater understanding of pizza in our culture. I can't speak for any other culture than other than American. Um, and I want to take a little credit for that, but <laughs> you should. it's not just me. It's, you know, it's guys like Mark Pavetri and, um, you know, Chris Bianco and others who've um, written just really, uh, you know, some pizza cookbooks at home. All of us had desirable, often hard to get into pizza restaurants. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I, I want to mark Vetri pizza and I I can't get in, you know, blah, blah, blah. Of course, we don't. We want people to stay in the line and wait. Yeah. Oh, you got to have a much line. better knowledge of pizza. There's um, um, there are a lot more good quality pizzerias out there than there were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The elevation of pizza knowledge in the United States is much higher than it was. Our access to ingredients is very good. Uh, and just generally accepted understanding among uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. who are makers uh, of how to do it well. Um, yeah. When, you know, 10 years ago, how many places were making pizza that had that leoparded crust? And like nobody pretty much yeah if you did you know it would be like measles on a crust people would say i don't really like that it's burned it's burned yeah well i heard you that know. too but you know, we didn't <laughs> even our, our crust uh 
to, to get that leopardine, you need extended fermentation. So, you know, that started with a project I already told you about just a few years ago and mm-hmm. a fairly high baking temperature, uh, 750 to 800 minimum baking temperature. Yeah. You need those two things in concert. And I don't think that was very well understood until five or 10 years ago. Until, I mean, Roberta's, you got to give them some credit for introducing oh, yeah, sure. that style. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's just a different world now in, in pizza. And I think the a lot of people, uh, can take credit for the elevation of the knowledge. Um, yep. uh, but then, you know, there's a lot of, uh, bootstrap chefs out there who saw ingredient costs is lower, labor costs is lower. I can actually make a living if I make really good pizza. And that's much harder to do in a traditional restaurant. Margin is wonderful in pizzerias. And also it's, it's kind of, it's kind of pandemic proof. It's kind of recession proof. Right. Uh, it is. I remember being in Italy, talking to people there. And they said, yeah, it was the one restaurant that will always survive a um, a recession is a pizzeria. Yeah. What do you think about pizza in the pan? Are you a fan of cooking pizza in a pan? I grew up eating pan pizza. Um, I like pizza in very many styles. Um, mm. And so um, <laughs> as a matter of fact, when I was a kid, my brother, when he was a teenager, he worked at a place called the pizza pan. So huh, cool. it's, you know, not... Um, uh, it's been around for a very long time. Okay, so you gave the keynote at the Pizza uh, Expo in Las Vegas this past summer. I How did. did that go? And what did you tell these Pozzolos from around the world? What did they What did they learn from you? Um, I thought it went really well. I was nervous, um, but I thought it went really well. I'd never addressed an audience of hundreds of people before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the International Pizza Expo in Vegas, it's the second largest food trade show in the country. Um, and there's uh, a lot of Italians. There's people from South America, from Japan, from all over the United States. Um, it's a huge event. And it was a real honor to be asked to be a keynote there. Um, and I wanted to tell a story that would be not just pablum, but you mm-hmm. know, not just stuff that everybody parrots, but you know, something unique to my business and what worked for me. Um, and essentially the theme, of my, the theme of my talk was I had to break it to fix it. And I was talking about my own pizzeria and we had, you know, I, I opened Ken's Artisan Pizza in 2006. And after, um, especially after writing the elements of pizza and spending a lot of time in, um, in Italy with really great pizzaiolos and the, Caputo flour people and the guy who made the tomatoes and mm. mozzarella de buffalo, all that, you know, I, it really evolved my thinking about pizza and um, it just percolated in my mind for a long, for a long time that there were changes I wanted to make to our pizza, uh, the pizza that we made at my place. And um, I wanted much longer fermented dough and I wanted to change the way we did our sauce and I and wanted to hand make our mozzarella, cut it differently. Wow. Thanks. Um, and I was actually, there was, a um, some institutional malaise at the pizzeria. We'd had long-term staff, but just, they didn't really want to do it. And, uh, ultimately I had to, um, rebuild the team. And, uh, well, when you, when you talk about a long fermented dough at a pizzeria, I mean, that's really hard to do that because it's a high volume game and you're always, in debt for dough, right? You're always waiting, you know, you're, you're selling out of dough. How do you make that adjustment for longer from, are we talking like 72 hour ferments um, and stuff like that? Uh, close. Uh, I found our best dough balls were two days in the fridge. Uh, okay. so how do you adjust? Well, you start by buying new refrigerators or additional <laughs> refrigeration. Additional, <laughs> yeah. right? You need more space physically, right? Of course. Exactly. Uh, but we had that. 
Um, and and then I needed to basically game it. I, I needed to staff have a staff that was on board. So that's why I said the theme of my talk was I had to break it to fix it. And you know, I had to. Just, I, I hated to get up there and say, you know, I had to fire some people to bring in a team that would actually work with me. But it was my pizzeria, and <laughs> you know, I knew what I wanted, and I knew it could be better. I also knew that I wasn't going to be doing this for another ten or twenty years. Uh, I had my own timeline in my head that. So I'm probably, you know, no more than five years from now. So I really want to leave with a pizza at our very best place. And I did. And, you know, at the end of the day, when I went back to Portland a few weeks ago and had dinner at my pizzeria and that staff was still in place. Uh, well, Vince, our chef, had just returned from Naples where um, Ken's Artisan Pizza was selected number 57 in the world. Um, so, and, wow. Wow. You know, wow. Wow. Getting number 11 in the United States. This is by an, an Italian a company called uh, 50 Top Pizza. And oh, yeah. I voted in that several times. I've definitely, oh, yeah. Oh. Not this year. I did not vote this year, but I, I know what that is, exactly what that is. So, anyway, it, um, it, it, I felt vindicated in a way. Um, Absolutely. It was really hard for me to make those changes. And yeah, this goes back to 2017 when I started to make the staffing changes to get us where we needed to be. And um, it was, there was a lot of resistance because the business was really good. We weren't hurting at all. And, no, like, but... you know, and there was some disruptions and our business went down for a while because I wasn't able to immediately, um, bring back or, or staff it properly. So, so what did you order when you're in the restaurant that holds your name, but you're not really there day to day. You're there spiritually oh, with the it's name. It's so hard. Um, it's I gotta to be tough. Like, Let's talk about that. What's, what's the vibe like? What are you, you're sitting in the dining room. What are you ordering? What's, what's going through your mind? Well, first off, I'm facing the kitchen. <laughs> My dining partner's <laughs> facing the other way. <laughs> so I can watch what's going on. Uh, but there's so many things I wanted to order. And so, you know, we had like four appetizers and, yeah, more pizzas than we had people sitting at the table. Yeah, usually mm -hmm. if, if I'm only ever going to be able to have one pizza there, it'll be a margarita. Um, and then I'll get a side of prosciutto. Uh, oh, yeah. You, know, you I have love the our beautiful. Pizza. I love our sopasada pizza. I love our veggie pies. You have those beautiful uh, prosciuttos there. And I I have to, I read your exit interview with Karen Brooks, great Portland journalist. And it seems that you've sold the businesses to longtime employees or that was your intention. I'm not sure if that's what happened. That is what happened in my bakery. Um, Theo and Randy had a combined 30 some years of working experience there. And they've been in management there for a long time. Um, so Randy was our pastry chef. And Theo was our general manager who was also our lunch chef. And, uh, manage the wholesale business. And between the two of them, they really knew how everything worked at the place. Um, and it was good for me because I wanted continuity. I wanted to be physically gone, but I wanted the bakery to remain the same. Um, and same at my at Ken's Artisan Pizza. Uh, I sold it to uh, Peter Cost, who's an excellent restaurant operator. Um, and he really, uh, uh, he knows food and uh, and he's done a fantastic job. So um, it was really rewarding to go back nine months later, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the kitchen team was all still there. The front of house staff was all still there. The bar staff, Man. our hosts, there had been hardly any turnover. And, and you could show your face. You didn't, you didn't get like, you know, you were booted out of town. I'm joking, of course, but this does happen. Oh man. <laughs> uh, can you imagine though? Like, you know, devoting your life to a place yeah. uh, for decades and then you can't even show up. That'd be awful. 
it would be awful. And I think it's happens more than you'd think I would imagine just because restaurant business is tough. And when it comes to equity and, and uh, the uh, for side. sure, I, I know it happens, uh, but it was yeah. great to be back. And I look nice. forward to going back again. Uh, switching gears. We, we, re- we wrote an article about you, about your new book on taste. And one of the quotes that you had, I, I really wanted to follow up with you on it. And it's, Let's look at the ingredient list on a loaf of standard, you know, multi-grain bread quotes. Like that's supposed to be the good stuff. But you've you've said clearly that you would be shocked if you knew what those ingredients meant. What does that mean exactly? Um, well, they, essentially these are breads that are made, made in very large bakeries uh, that are built for a long shelf life. Uh, so they'll have dough conditioners and um, things that, go beyond flour, water, salt, and yeast. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my first book was titled that way for a reason, uh, because I wanted to show people how good bread can be when it's made with only its traditional ingredients. Um, multigrain sticks basically with those traditional ingredients. You know, I used uh, oats, I used buckwheat, and I used barley. Uh, and so multigrain, true to its, you know, to its name, um, it does not have added wheat gluten or vital wheat gluten, uh, which is there to allow for the dough to hold its rise when it's got all the stuff in it. Um, and for fast rise is something that's used in industrial mm-hmm. baking, but it does nothing to add to the flavor of the bread. Uh, makes it harder for you to digest because you got to break down more gluten in your belly. And um, if you just look at the ingredients label and ask yourself, if you don't know what it is, do you want to eat it? And you know, I, I apply that to everything so I uh, guess I, you can tell I didn't raise a family of children. For, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is a difficult task not to, 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 to try to find every ingredient, but I, but the point is well taken. And I think, um, I'd like to ask as a follow-up, how do we actually buy commercial bread? If we do have a family or we can't make it to a bakery. I mean, we've got these brands that kind of tout like, you know, sprouted this or killer this Dave's killer, well, Dave's Killer Bread is a great example. Uh, Vital Wheat Gritten is um, uh, a long time ago. I read an article of, or an interview with David. He was talking about he couldn't make his breads without that. And I'm like, dude, this is this is not good. This is really yeah. not good. Maybe there's a reason people have gluten sensitivity because they've been consuming more gluten than our guts evolved to digest. And when you add Vital Wheat Gluten just so it you know, can rise fast and hold its form, um, you know, I'm calling bullshit on that. That's not feeding the people well. Yeah, it's strong words, and I appreciate that because I think we oftentimes get marketed bread like lots of things, like the word organic, like the word fair trade coffee, the term that fair trade coffee. Like we we get marketed these terms, and we don't really know what they're doing to our bodies. So how do I buy good bread at the grocery store if I don't have that bakery down the street, which some of us, you know, many listeners don't have? Um, I don't really, I'm not really the person to answer that question because I yeah. would say that the, the answer isn't how do you buy good bread at the store? It's how do you make bread at home that has integrity and in its ingredients and it tastes good, uh, but it's not a lot of work. And that was really the mission behind evolutions in bread is how to make a multigrain at home, how to make a whole wheat bread at home, how to make white bread, brioche at home uh, without it being a lot, you know, very much work. Um, and yeah, that's what I tried to achieve. I think I did. I'm glad you came back to that point because I was leading you a bit towards that because I think um, making bread at home is the answer um, and also making bread at home isn't as difficult as you may think. Um, you may not get the perfect, you know, 
skin or the perfect, you know, crumb. Yeah, it doesn't have all... to be perfect. And right. you know, it gets better every time you do it. And, you know, when I'm writing in my books, my instructions, I'm all, um, it's a little heady, but I, I'm just assuming that this is not a one-time thing. You know, you're going to do this recipe. And then I always write, next time you do it, you know, adjust based yeah. on this or that. Well, it's fun. I mean, and it goes back to like our pandemic bread baking obsession. It was actually a fun thing to do when we had a lot of not fun things in our lives, right? Baking oh. bread is fun. Yeah. And if you have children, wouldn't you want to engage your kids in that? Um, so, you know, when I was specifically riffing on multigrain bread and like and evolutions in bread and about its ingredients, it's like, would you rather feed your family bread that is based on these ingredients that you know that you bought or with all this stuff in it, you don't really know what it is. Let's talk about your writing practice, Ken. Are you developing recipes constantly? Are you are you kind of putting in that work as like a multi-cookbook author? Are you thinking about another cookbook or are you just writing for fun? Um, I'm not writing for fun. Um, I am a big reader. So, uh, yeah. and I, I like readers, you know, I, I search out authors that are, you know, like I'm rereading re Gabrielle Hamilton's Blood, Bones and Butter. And gosh, she's such a great writer. I could never, and to be a great writer, you have to be a really great thinker. And she is that. Um, in terms of any future projects, um, I'm doing an adaptation of Evolutions in Bread in comic book form um, ah, with um, Sarah Bacon, who did Let's Make Ramen and Let's Make Dumplings. Um, and we just finished our draft uh, last month. And that'll be a lot of fun to, I think it's about a year out on that one. So exciting. Is um, that with 10 speed? Yeah, that's, uh, that's 10 speed press. Wonderful. Yeah. Can't wait to see that one. Well, we ask all guests in the taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you ha don't have a deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money to, to get the book done. Ken, what would that book be? Oh man, I, I think I've already written three of those. And the experience I had after writing flour, water, salt, yeast, Elements of Pizza and Evolutions in Brad was, I feel kind of spent. And so the creative Jones has been pretty well satisfied for me. Uh, it probably take me a few years before I have the, that spark. Uh, and each one was not an intentional, I need to write a new book, what book am I going to write? It was the spark of the idea drove the creation of the book. And I can never, you know, who can define when that next spark is going to come or whether it's going to be even valid enough to, to act upon it. I'm going to, I'm going to bet on it happening. I'm going to bet <laughs> on you writing something else. Cause I just know you have it in you. Ken Forkish, thank you for joining the taste podcast. Uh, pleasure is mine. Thanks, Matt. Matt, so you just came back from Korea. I want to hear all about it. What were you doing there? Who were you with? What did you eat? Tell me it all. I was there recording um, nothing. I don't know why I said recording. I was, uh, well, I was recording interviews with a lot of people um, for our book, Korea World. I was there with Dookie Hong, who I, I'm writing this book with, and then Alex Lau, who's also a co-author and, and photographing the book. Um, so we were lucky to go back to Korea. We were there last fall and around the same time in November and we made a return trip this time. So we're working on the book where we're, we're kind of reporting, um, about Seoul and many of the areas surrounding Seoul. But this trip in particular, 
Um, I had some breakthroughs with Seoul, and I want to get into that a bit later. But in general, we were in Seoul. Then we flew down to Jeju Island, which is like the Hawaii of Korea. We spent a little time in Guangzhou, and then we went back to Seoul. And then on the last day, we went up to Gawando, which is where the Olympics were in 2018 and has a, its own kind of flair and flavor. So you were bopping all over the place a little bit, it seems like. I landed and I'm, I ended up in Seoul. So like Seoul to me has changed. This is my sixth trip to Korea. And I feel like I know Seoul better than ever, but it asks so many more questions of me, right? Yeah, like what? One thing is like, what is going on with coffee and bakeries? Because right now in Seoul, I really, I of course was really focusing on a lot of the traditional cuisine and, and something I've been covered for over a decade. A lot of the traditional foods that you'll find in Korea towns around America, around the world, the chigae's, the kimchi's, the namuls, the tongs, the gyms, all the classics that we love talking about. But for us, this trip in particular, I wanted to get a sense of what was happening in modern Seoul in terms of this cross between Western and Eastern cuisine. And two things that struck me were the bakeries and the coffee culture, which have exploded exponentially in the past couple years. And I found myself eating more kuganaman and croissants and sandwiches and jambon bear than I was actually kimbap and, and kimchi chige at times, of course. So that was really interesting. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Do you feel like it's like a big laminated pastry moment based on what you're saying? Are there like things that you expect to see at all of the coffee shops or is it a mix? Definitely a big focus on lamination and croissants. I think you're you're walking through the streets and you're smelling croissant baking, this that rich butter baking smell everywhere. I mean, it's almost like the way Subway in America blasts out the Subway smell. I feel like Korea in Seoul, many of the entrepreneurs have like realized, let's blast out croissant smell, and 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 let's bring in and and bring in a bunch of new uh, customers. Now, I'm going to back up a bit. Of course, bakeries are not new to Korea. Major chains like Tous Les Jours um, are there and ever present, and certainly um, in Korean culture the idea of the bakery and the cafe as a place to socialize and hang out is not new. But what I really am seeing is just this exceptional um, dedication to craft that I think many food writers, especially in America, they fetishize Japan for having craft and as they should, Japan is incredible craft, but we have to look at Seoul and Korea for um, for definitely this level of craft that is not maybe covered as much. And Liza, I want to call out a couple places uh, in particular that I found really yeah. interesting baked goods because I really you run um, you know Cake Zine and you're you're on the the pastry beat and and have do amazing coverage of of the bake, baking world and through culture. So I, I thought of you from this one place. I really I thought of you. It's called Tongue Planet. It's in, it's crazy. It's so cool. Um, there's an, there's a Korean fashion line or a retail line called Adder Air, and it's Adder Air's um, cafe. And this is in the Songsu neighborhood where I spent a ton of time. Uh, and Songsu is um, a neighborhood that is adjacent to Seoul Forest. Um, many have called it the Bushwick of Seoul. Um, it has a lot of a concentration of, of design focused retail. So Adder Air is doing an incredible concept store there. Um, but Tongue Planet is their second level cafe and they've got these cakes that 
I'll I'll call it they they they're decorated with the most I would say demonic squiggly face designs that I've ever seen on a pastry. A demonic cake, that's what you're saying. I love that. <laughs> well, it's like demonic like squiggly faces and and these cakes are are individual serve cakes. And like a lot of uh, these bakeries, high-end bakeries in Korea, um and also, as seen at Lycée in New York City, there's a bit of a, a studio element. You're walking in and you're seeing all the pastries lined up on a table. Um, there's kind of like display versions of these cakes. And so you can like see them in their form and then order them. So I think it's like definitely a very Korean way of presenting cakes. So I love Tongue Planet for the cakes, but I also love this place, Meal Degree. Um, it's also in Songsu. And I have to say, one of my grails in life is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in East Asia. And I found in Japan, I've been to Japan a number of times, I've, I've had the most incredible, you know, milk bread, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I found one in Korea that is the be- better than anyone I've ever had in my life. Wow. What well, made it so much better than the rest? Because those all sound delicious to me. It just as a concept. I feel like that fluffy bread and, and creamy peanut butter must be just inherently delicious. Inherently. And I think what's happened is it's incredibly fresh and beautiful milk bread sliced perfectly on the on the diagonal, kind of shoved into plastic the same that you'd see at 7-Eleven um, in uh, Japan or Korea. But for some reason, the peanut butter, the quality of the peanut butter was high. And it's it's interesting. I was traveling a bit, and I and I, I was at a couple of hotels that were serving peanut butter. And you're not finding great peanut butter in, in Korea. You're finding this kind of artificial, very lightweight, whipped peanut butter. And you know, certainly nothing that's like Jif, um, which I feel is the gold standard. We can, we can definitely talk about that at length um, for industrial peanut butter. But I, I, I just thought they had a really good peanut butter and I loved it so much. I love that. I also think we could talk about peanut butter at a later date for an extended period of time. Um, but I'm curious, was there a third place on your list for bakeries? Um, I mean, I, I'm actually writing a a piece for why is this interesting? It may drop before, after about cafe culture or coffee culture in Seoul. And I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. But um, so coffee is its own incredible, incredibly exciting thing in, in Seoul. And I'll, I'll write about that in the book as well. But for bakeries, I mean, I got to say, um, I went to a place, Wala Cafe in Gangwondo, uh, in Sokchu, which is a cool town um, on the ocean. And I had probably my fifth burnt cheesecake slice of the trip. <laughs> <laughs> I love it's, that it's that many options that this is your fifth one. Well, I went on a little sampling crawl over the course, but this was the best one. And, you know, the the Basque cheesecake, the burnt cheesecake um, has, has really taken off in Korea. You're going to see it everywhere, as well as Delgona um, candy, which if you've watched Squid Game, you know there's an important scene related to Delgona candies, but it's very, very, and that's like a burnt sugar candy that we're we're working on a recipe for Korea world about that. But burnt cheesecake was really, um, great at this place. Voila cafe. And on this, on the boardwalk in Sokju. That sounds great. And I'm curious about your trip down to Jeju Island also, because that's a place I've been interested in going to for a while. What was that like? Yeah. Well, Eliza, you know, Jeju to me was always a place that I wanted to go. And I, I, I felt I was lucky enough to go on a, a tour 
uh, with Dookie Hong. He was leading it with some with some cool folks, and we got to spend a few days in Jeju. Um, and I and it was through with Chima Travels, who's uh, a great operator of, of trips and tours. She um, had been there a few times, but I really gotta say. It's a beautiful place, and I didn't quite get to experience the food that I wanted to, but I got to try two of the local, I would say, delicacies or local favorites. One is the black pork, Jeju black pork, which is like samjipsal. It's grilled on on a cast iron uh, griddle, and it's kind of like most of the time pork in Korea is, is a little more of like the kind of flatter, like porky but less porky um industrial stuff which is great when you're like drinking soju and you want to have a nice um barbecue experience but it doesn't have a lot of porkiness the jeju black pork tastes more like berkshire um in the states it has a little more of that deeper gamier flavor and it's a little bit tougher but i i think i i liked it better so i I enjoy jeju black pork that pork sounds so good. And I'm curious if you got to spend any time hanging out with the Hanyo divers while you were there, because um, that's something that I, I'm definitely curious in seeing for myself. So, Eliza, it's Hanyo um, are the older female divers that have now recently become part of pop culture and cultural lore of Jeju. And it's, it's really exciting. Um, in a pretty patriarchal society, um, I would call the the Hanyo a, a a burst of feminism and 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 female empowerment that I think is exciting for many in Korea, and I think there's a lot of pride around the Hanyo. I have witnessed and been with Hanyo um, on location, but not this trip. I was in Korea in 2014 with the chef Edward Lee and the reality star Adrina Patridge. It is a long story for another day. I love both of them dearly. They're both very cool people. And on that trip, I got to see Hanyo diving and 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 harvesting abalone and um and and some other shellfish. And that was great. But on this trip, Hanyo have become a little more, I would call them scarce. It's they're there more as like furthering the the knowledge of the Hanyo than actually diving though I'm sure in all throughout Korea there are working Hanyo of course it just becomes less it's it's more rare yeah that that makes sense to me I, I guess um I think they're probably a, a tourist attraction on the island in some way as well which which makes sense um just considering like how historic that tradition is and also the way that people have been getting seafood over time I'm sure has changed Absolutely. And, you know, Eliza, there's a beautiful museum dedicated to the Hanyo that we went to that I really liked. And it, it really traces the history of the Hanyo on the island and how um, Hanyo plays such an important role in Korean culture. Um, and as I said, it's a breath of, of fresh air um, seeing female empowerment in this way. Um, and I, I, I think maybe at later on, there will be a moment where Hanyo will be, there'll be more of like a younger generation of Hanyo, but I think the work is so difficult that it's, it's challenging to recruit new Hanyo because the work is extremely hard. Yeah. If anyone listening isn't familiar, it's definitely a fun internet rabbit hole to fall down. These women are basically deep sea diving uh, without any equipment or any like protective um, clothing in my to my understanding, in, the, in this cold water, and and they're harvesting um, all of the bounty of of the ocean or around the island. Um, so it is 
a really longstanding tradition that is uh, hugely difficult, I think, and requires a lot of, of training and ability. Correct, Eliza. It's absolutely right. Thanks for doing the the abridged version. I appreciate that. I think one thing um, that I am uh, want to point out is that it's not only seafood. Hanyo are actually um, harvesting seaweed, kim. So that's one big part of the Hanyo um, kind of harvesting experience too. But um, I highly recommend visiting Jeju. And I was going to say the other item I had, which Jeju is known for, and I wasn't a biggest fan, is is um, horse. So they have a tradition of of, of serving horse um, on the island. Uh, they, they say Mongols brought horses to the island back when Mongols were ruling. And I tried at a restaurant many types of horse. I had a, a, a UK style of horse, which is like an icy frozen raw version of horse with um, you know, Asian pears. I also had a gym, which is like a steamed or braised horse. And then I had um, grilled horse as well. And I have to say, I have very little opinion about the flavor because there wasn't much, at least in the horse that we tried. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had a favorite preparation of horse, <laughs> but it seems like maybe you didn't like any of them. <laughs> You know, I don't want to like undersell horse as a, as a food because I have one, a sample size of one place, but honestly, I can't, I can't recommend it. I did find out some things about the actual meat and the way it's harvested. It's interesting. So it's not like wild horse. There's a farm that the, that the owner goes to, they, um, harvest one horse a week for this restaurant. Um, they are between one and two years old and they are bred for meat. So it has less, um, muscle than, um, a working horse. And is there a specific, um, like body part of the horse that's like extra prized or are you eating like all the different parts of it? No, it's not. Um, it's not nose to tail pony that we're going for here. (laughs) It's not, uh, I, I, I think my understanding and I asked that question as well. And in translation, it wasn't quite clear, but we're talking about the working muscles of the horse. Um, it's not, um, necessarily the offal. Uh, this does remind me of a previous trip to Korea. I went to Pohang, which is a, a coastal city that is known for steel production. And I was treated to a very costly and, um, rare whale omakase style meal, like a tasting of whale. Now that Eliza was, 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 was it nose to tail, I guess, or yeah, I guess whales have tails, nose to tail whale eating. Wow. I'm just processing that because I remember, um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and there was a huge scandal when I was growing up that one of the sushi restaurants um, down by the water was was serving whale um, kind of off the menu. But I guess in, you know, all over the world, people are eating different kinds of things in different places. So that's um, totally valid. Well, I, I wish I could speak clearly about the validity of the harvest of this whale. I, I still think it's very problematic. Whales are endangered species and the harvesting of whale is extremely violent and I'm not a fan of it. I wanted to try it. I was a guest and I did not want to be rude. Um, it does sound extremely douchey to serve whale in Calif- in Southern California too. So I'll co-sign on that. But I, the, the, the bottom line about whale is it's <laughs> fuck, it's awful tasting. It was awful tasting. And I'll say this, it is a cross between mammal and marine. And you really don't want to eat a lamb times salmon ever in your life. It's basically lamb crossed with salmon. Think about that for a second. 
<laughs> chicken of the <laughs> sea it's not it's not chicken of the sea it's it's basically uh, lamb brains of the sea i had breast i had whale tongue i had blubber i had raw i had braised i had grilled it was never ending i was sitting on the floor it was not a great experience but i i'm glad i have it for at least a story and maybe to write about one day yeah it sounds like quite the experience and and this trip sounds like um quite the special trip i'm i'm curious you know this has been what your seventh trip to Korea, your sixth trip to Korea? Um, like, what are your tips for people that that are maybe um, planning a trip? Maybe they got a, a nice flight deal recently, mm-hmm. or they're just planning on coming out to Korea. Like, what would you recommend? Great question, Eliza. I think a couple tips, and I'll have to say we're recording this in in late November, and the dollar is extremely strong um, in Korea against the won, and I I, I think that it was a thirty percent discount from a year ago. And if those prices maintain, please book a flight and and get to Korea this this winter. Winter is a great time to go. It's cold, but it's dry and it's it's very pretty. Summer is extremely um humid and 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 rainy and and there's definitely um, more tourists there. One tip I have is um really first one tip I have is like definitely get cacao tea or cacao taxi on your phone and sign up for cacao. Google is not widely used in Korea. So there's less, uh, and Uber is hard to find. So getting a cacao tea is important to get around. Um, but, but really you're going to find, um, you're going to find extremely easy moments in the trip. You're going to find difficult moments. Um, English is, I've been, this is my sixth trip. I've been going there for over a decade and and English is even, is more prominent than ever, but still you have to kind of know what you're getting into. Luckily there's great resources online. Um, and there's lots of great follows on social media. Um, doobie doo bop is one, um, Tina Choi, who I had on the podcast recently is a great follow. Um, James E. Park, um, Irene Yu, all Americans who, um, who go to Korea, uh, often and are great follows and have great lists. Um, but one tip I have is really like any major city, get some great walking shoes and hit the pavement and walk around. And and one neighborhood I love is Songsu. I mentioned it. It's definitely more of the Bushwick of Korea uh, or of Seoul. That's just kind of a general term. But there's a lot of cool things happening, designer shops, but also really interesting restaurants and, and culture happening there. I love going south. Um, to Apujang, and that's a great neighborhood not far from Gangnam, which everyone knows from the song, but is more of a fluent neighborhood. But Apujang is also has a real south of the river vibe. And then north of the river, I've always enjoyed um, my time in Itaewon. Um, I've enjoyed my time in uh, Mapo uh, and, I've, I, and, and Hongdae. But there's so many great neighborhoods in, in Seoul. It's it's worth a week alone. I, I as I said, I was reporting on Korea World, and we'll have plenty of resources in the book about where to visit in Seoul. Well, those all sound great. You're inspiring me to go check <laughs> my Google flights um, right after this. Check. So thanks for the rundown. Thanks, Eliza. It's great catching up with you uh, and talking about one of my favorite places to visit, if not my very favorite place to visit. And thanks for asking great questions. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.